Tim Duncan, I read an article in Sports Illustrated when he won his last title. Every year, he would hold a team meeting and talk about if they signed a free agent or whatever draft pick they took. Here's one of the best basketball players in the world, legend. And he would talk about what are we going to do to make sure this person's successful? That's very different. And I think that's the right attitude. People go, oh, we have high turnover. Well, why don't you think it's your fault? Welcome to the Rising Leader Podcast, where being a high achiever doesn't necessarily equate to being an effective leader. Let's check to see if you're in the right place. If you're rising through the ranks of your organization so fast that your leadership skills need to grow as fast as your responsibilities, you're in the right place. If it seems you need different skills to lead your team or lead from within a group of talented, competitive peers, you're in the right place. If you're looking to become a trusted advisor to the CEO, you are definitely in the right place. So now that we know that you're in the right place, enjoy today's conversation. Before we begin, I have something for you. Have you not read Only Tens 2.0 yet? If you've been listening to the show, my guess is you have read it. Would you like to give away a copy to someone you care about, someone who's struggling with time and energy management, someone who needs to focus on the important things? Well, if you go to markjsilverman.com, click on the red resource buttons, we have put a free copy of Only Tens 2.0 for you to download, and you can upload it onto your electronic device of choice. I hope you enjoy. So this is a peak experience for me. Really talk to some amazing people, some people who influenced me in my life, who influence other people who have done crazy, amazing things, have insights. But this time I get to interview, I'm a little nervous, like I don't get nervous anymore. And now I'm talking to someone who really means a ton to me. And I may get emotional about this. This man has influenced thousands, tens of thousands of people, but he changed my life. If you listen to the podcast a few weeks ago, the 10 things I learned from Tom Mendoza, you'll know why this is so important to me. So I asked Tom to be on the podcast because he's been a leader for decades. He's changed people's lives. He's built incredible businesses, and he speaks globally on leadership and culture. He's on the board of several companies. He's the former president and vice chair of NetApp, one of the fastest growing tech companies in Silicon Valley history. And now he's here to share with us some of his insights over the decades. Tom, thanks for being here. My pleasure, Mark. What an introduction. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Going downhill from, downhill from here. Jeez. One of the things, my, my, my rabbi, Levi Deitch, when he died, you know, he was, he was my best friend. And we had coffee together all the time. And after he died at the funeral, every single person said that they thought he was their best friend. You That's know, like, cool. like, yeah. and for me, I know, you know, me, right? Like, like mm -hmm. all these years and I know, you know, me, you care about me and everything. And there's thousands of me's. Thank you. I'm curious, you know, like, how do you do that? You would call people to catch someone doing something right. And you were running right. a freaking global company. Yep. Where does that come from to yeah. be so interested in people? Well, first of all, that's two questions. Where, where does it come to be so interested in people? I think came from my dad. You know, my dad was his father's father from Cuba, father's mother from Ireland, grew up with nothing. They were both dead when he was 16, grew up in the streets of New York City. So he enlisted in World War II, two months after Pearl Harbor at 16. His mother signed the paperwork. He got his finger taken off in a newspaper press that he was working at at 16. And she never thought they'd take him, and they took him because they were taking everybody. So boom, he's in World War II. And he was that guy throughout my life that, you know, he played 
World Pitch Softball at a very high level, but that's usually sponsored by a bar. <laughs> Kelly's Irish House was the bar. If he walked in there, he would know every employee, if they had kids, how they, and he would take that time to go see everybody. He didn't necessarily talk to the owner. He talked to all those people. He did something. So he changed careers, Mark, at 47. And Merrill Lynch hired him to be a broker. And they used to only hire kind of kids who went to elite schools, go get your friend's money. And they came out with a program. Let's, let's hire people who've been successful in sales somewhere, but don't have that pedigree to see how they do it. He was one of the first ever hired. Watched him study, which he had never done in his life. So it was brutal. But he used to do something where he'd read the papers, New York Times or whatever paper, and they talk about promotion. And he would drop them all a note. He'd handwrite a note, read their stories. They love to see people getting ahead, especially if they came from environments like him. And people would call him and go, do I know you? <laughs> no. There was a track star who tore their leg up as a girl, tripped over a curb, and a career basically looked like it was over. And we got in the car because my brother was a super fast kid. My brother was a big time athlete. And he took my brother's newspaper clippings and we drove an hour and a half into the hospital and showed her those clippings because my brother came back to be a professional baseball player. And I'm like, so I'm watching this. And many, many years later, every time someone met my dad, they would talk about what he had done for their life. And I thought, this is, this is what success looks like to me. <laughs> and they, to put it on a business level, the groups that I had always led, so I was a sales leader for most of my career, you know, district manager to a regional manager, that kind of thing. First uh, leadership job, I was 26, so I had to learn a lot. But my teams always had an esprit de course similar to what you experienced at Network, where we were in it together. You know, your team there were Greg Collins and Michael Dial. People loved each other. And it wasn't, it was stressful. We expected high results, but you knew everybody was in it together. And I had that all the time. None of the companies I worked for had it. I had to shield my people from above me because mm -hmm. they really didn't care. They loved them if the numbers were up and they didn't love them if they didn't. So when I got asked to be part of NetApp with, right at the beginning, 32, I was a 32nd employee. Dave Hitz and James Howard worked with me at my previous company. They said, we'd love to have a company that looked like what you did in sales. I was like, how good would that be from my mm -hmm. perspective? And then when Dan Warmanhoven joined six months later as CEO, he said to me, we are going to, well, we had our first offsite. I just redid my LinkedIn profile yesterday and told this story. It was in my retirement message when I left NetApp, which over 400,000 people viewed and commented on. And we said, what are we going to stand for? What is it that we're going to do here? And we walked away saying, we're going to create something we're proud of the rest of our lives. Now, that's a very different filter that we're going to have this revenue. And so that that to me said, that, that's going to determine who you hire. Are you proud of them? Are you proud to be on that team with this person? Who you promote critically? So that, that was, and then the second thing is, going back to why I would call the people, I've always felt that obviously when you're, especially in a high growth area, you can always identify problems. And that's okay. As long as you come with a solution, otherwise it's called bitching. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, but if you say, Mark, you can even say, you know, we do it this way. It's not working. Have you thought about that? I like those conversations, but more important to me was, if you're really asking people to give you their heart and soul and go all in, you got to make sure they know you appreciate them and respect them. So I came out with the saying, catch someone doing something right, right at the end of 94, beginning of 95. We're still, but I couldn't see it anymore. It started to grow real fast, probably 95. An old concept was, to, I said to the leaders, if you see someone do something extraordinary to help 
NetApp, to help a customer, help a partner, to help society. Let me know and I'll call. And that it eventually became almost, I would say, 80% peer-to-peer. I want to tell you about the person sitting next to me. I want to tell you, I just went through training. And this person sat there and gave me their own time because they said they're paying it forward because someone did it for them. Mm. And I viewed that as viral culture building because people, if you say something and you people always say, why do you call? Well, there's the lesson of what we're looking for. And I tried to, I tried to focus on people doing the right things without being told to do it. And we had a, a young lady in Houston running a seminar. And a guy calls me up and he goes, we had two seminars two days in a row. The only time you normally notice someone running a seminar is if like the coffee's cold. <laughs> right? The food didn't arrive on time. And he said at the end of the first night, she she picked up all the food and took it to a car. And I thought, man, she's got a hungry family. And he saw her do it the second night. And he walked over. He said, why are you taking all the food? She said, bring it down to a homeless shelter. And I thought, so I called her. I said, you know, we're trying to do something special here. That defines what I'm trying to figure out how we do. And a closing note on that is I always was aware that you could treat people poorly and still succeed. Because remember, I came from successful companies, but people was not a part of the equation. But I thought, if we're going to spend all our life on this and we create something we're proud of, what would make me proud? It would make me proud if the people who worked here felt like it was a life-defining experience. If the people who bought from them felt like they were interfacing with a group of people who were committed, happy, and they could trust them. And years and years and years later, people would talk about how it affected their lives, which I've heard you do in the, on your other podcast. So that was the goal. And you know, it, it, you, you always said you had four constituencies. You had the people who worked there, the customers, your partners, right? And then the shareholders. And I remember that being drummed into us. In that but- order. But but also being drummed into us yeah. that we care about you, so you'll go out and care about our partners and our customers. Right, and that, that's why I put it, our shareholders. That's why I put it at the top because Dan Worman over and I had an interesting conversation early on. He said, "I think our shareholders should be number one." I said, "I just don't. I'm the one saying it, so I'm going to say what I want to say." <laughs> <laughs> you say what you want to say, but I think if you do the first three, your shareholders win. If you focus on shareholders, that's what my previous companies had done. You can make a lot of decisions that aren't good at all for the people or the partners or your customers and still make money. That's my point. So that's, I just thought we had an opportunity because of like-minded guys leading it. And I think you would agree. Dave and James are phenomenal people. Dave, Dave has James Lau. And Dan, I had, I had a boss that backed me from day one, never had happened before. You know, we had a small sales kickoff when he first joined. He says, there's only two things we're going to invest in, making a product and selling it. The rest of you better get used to it. But this guy, I'm on his side. And, you know, most engineering guys don't say that to the sales guy. And so yeah. I felt, you know, so when I interviewed people, I always thought, is this a person I'd like to have dinner with if I came to town? The answer was no, I didn't hire him. Is this somebody I really like? Because they may be super talented, but if I'm feeling that, it's my experience telling me there's something not right here. And you might as well, it's like finding a, a date or a wife or you can overlook certain things, but you'd rather have it to where you just really, really like that person in its entirety. Good, bad, and but you like them. Start with that. You like them. You trust them. You want to be around them. It was it was uncanny that it was uncanny that you guys built a, not only were were the people that I work with amazing, but the leadership team. You know, no, I never heard anybody complain about the leadership team. Put down the leadership team. They'd argue with it with them. They'd challenge them, but nobody ever did that. And when I went to my next company. And we were at kickoff and they were complaining and bitching about the leadership team. My, my sales manager turns to me and says, 
get used to it, Mark. You're not at NetApp anymore. This is the real world. Yeah. I was like, oh, shit. I, and I gave my notice. <laughs> I said, well, I'm you, not staying here. You remember, Mark, one of the key things we always thought about was candor. Not a lot of companies talk about that because we felt it was important that if you had something to say, you got to say it in a room where that person can talk to you about it. No titles matter, but you could get your feeling expressed. But when that door opened, we don't want to hear that stuff. When that door opens, a decision's made. Now we march. What NetApp was, John Mortgage is a good friend of mine. John was the original CEO of Cisco. He's teaching Stanford. He was my direct boss at Stratus. And John was teaching at Stanford and he turned to me. He said, you know, let me say something about NetApp. He was introducing me. He said, I don't think they're a great strategy company. <laughs> it's a great way to start an introduction. He said, but I do think they're a great execution company. And that's a function of once they make a decision, they they go. And there's a lot of trust that has to happen in an organization for that to happen. And if we say, look, we've thought it all, we've heard your input, we've got it, but this is the decision. But I always appreciate it. everyone went, okay, woof. And you can fight a lot bigger opponent if you're all aligned, if you're all in it together, you're willing to sacrifice for each other. And I think most importantly, the actions of the people, not just the executives throughout the organization mirrored that. It wasn't just words. Every company, how many companies say this stuff? How many companies actually do it? <laughs> you know, when times get tough, when now you're facing a crisis, it's so easy to fall back on what's good for you, not the organization. But I would interview people. I'd say, Mark, I'd say, look, there are people who might pay you more. Our big competitor, EMC, paid more, but they also have bigger numbers. They're a much bigger company. I said, but this is who we are. We will treat you fairly. You will get compensated well if you perform. But this is an organization that cares. They care about each other. They, they're going to be there if you have a problem. You know, I'm sure there's stories that you can remember where somebody had a problem and we stepped in to help them. We, we didn't abandon them. And in a lot of companies, that's not true. Well, you had a very interesting story. I, I never forget you walking out of the water at Club in Lanai. And, uh, you know, we had maybe met before, but we'd never talked. No. You sat there, sat there and chatted. And I was like, I like this guy. Me, <laughs> like you, me, you and Mike Riley on a picnic table. And I had never been to Hawaii. Like I hadn't traveled the world yet. So this was all yeah. me. And I was sitting there with the president of my company. And he was just a regular guy. It was really cool. The other thing about, you know, the culture that you talk about now that, you know, this past year with COVID, all the, all, all the men and women I work with in leadership positions, I used a lot of what you taught this year in making sure that they were making phone calls. Yeah, people. And even if it was five minutes, the, the connection and having them understand, because people are self-conscious about who they are. It's not that important that someone hears from me. I said, no, in your position, who you are in the company, you're the CEO, right. you're the vice president, a five minute phone call from you will be a game changer. You don't know what's on the other end of the phone with people this past year. And it's been so transformational for the companies yeah. that I work with you know, this past year. And I think a lot of companies have found some of this because of the tragedy of COVID. Yeah, I agree. I, if you recall the leadership mantra I tried to live, I didn't come up with that. I think they give Teddy Roosevelt credit, but who knows? Because people don't care what you know unless you know what you care. And I ask people, when they ask me to speak at companies, Take compensation aside and tell me how you show people you care. And I've I've had a room full of executives at a major telco look like I asked them to square root of two, right? Oh, look around and the guy goes, I think is you gotta keep compensation in. I'm like, you can't come up with any other way that you show them you care other than a paycheck. It was a major I said, what's an average raise here? Three percent. Really? And do you deliver that news in person? 
email or a note on their chair. He goes, note on their chair. I go, oh, I need a moment. <laughs> oh, my God. It must be an emotional. You got 2% this year. Oh, my God. Thank you. I said, you have, and remember, you, you asked me to communicate because you have a morale issues. I think we're on to something here. <laughs> None of you even know who works for you. You know, Bill McDermott is a great leader, right? ServiceNow, he was SAP CEO. He called me. There's a book called Contagious Success written by Susan Anunzio. And a chapter in there is on NetApp and me doing this. She's a PhD professor at the University of Chicago. And she was trying to prove that if you treat people well and you care about them, it actually helps your financial results. And Bill read the book. He called me up and he said, how do you find the time for all these calls? I average 10 calls a day over a 15-year period. And my admin would log them all because I want to make sure and check them as I call it because I always send it to him because I want to make sure I don't miss it. I always try to do them that day because you can't get behind if you're going to do that. I said, Bill, how, how long do you think those calls last? I don't know. Probably 30 seconds. You said five minutes. Five minutes is a long call coming in unexpected. Now, they may ask me. They may say, I didn't expect. But it's typically, hey, Mark, I heard you did. First of all, Mark, comment those. Yeah, right. <laughs> let me catch reaction. my breath. <laughs> oh, no. What happened? Who called him to get? And I say, and this is good news. I heard you did this, this, and this. I just want to let you know we're proud of you. And then to make it into, tell me about yourself. So it may go on for two minutes of a call when you're not expecting it is actually a long call. So let's say it's two minutes, 10 a day, 20 minutes. What I say to people, what are you doing? It's so important. You don't have 20 minutes. Walking in, walking to a call, boom, in the car, boom. And you know what? I got as much more out of it than the other person because I mm. learned about it. And almost always, you said, how did you know? so?" Well, one of the things people say is, how did you know so many people at corporate if you walked around me? You know, and I'd walk into the, every day when I walked into the dining room, whatever we called it, I would look for someone I didn't know and I'd sit with them. Then other people would sit down because they know she must be okay. I actually watched you do that several times. <laughs> I actually saw you walk across a room to people who, someone who was standing alone, introduce yourself without your title, just say, hi, I'm Tom Mendoza. And I just watched it and said, that's who I want to be. So it really goes back to almost anything. What is important to you? And it was important to me that everyone knew that there are certain companies that when you join them, they put you basically on probation for six months, maybe even a year. They want to see if you're going to work out. If you work out, then you become part of the club. I never thought that was smart. I mean, I don't care what other people do, but if we've taken the time to hire you, I want you successful. I want to help you day one. Tim Duncan. I read an article in Sports Illustrated when he won his last title. Every year, he would hold a team meeting and talk about if they signed a free agent or whatever draft pick they took. And here's one of the best basketball players in the world, legend. And he would talk about what are we going to do to make sure this person is successful? That's very different. And I think that's the right attitude. People go, oh, we have high turnover. Well, why don't you think it's your fault? Mm, why is it responsibility for oh, your team? Right. What are, we, what are we not doing that? Why are they not successful as opposed to I guess it's just bad people. You've heard people say that kind of stuff. So I don't know. I just, I just, the way I felt about NetApp over time, especially when we were really in it together for a long time, is I never felt like I interviewed anybody. Me, I didn't recruit, I should say. I just told them factually what I believe was potential that a company was, which proved true, and also all the challenges. I didn't make it sound easy. And now Mark's sitting there and, and Joe's sitting there. Mark and Joe are listening. And Joe's thinking, this is not for me. And Mark's thinking, this is exactly what I've been looking for. And I feel like that, and both are right, by the way, but I felt like the right employee feels like they came home. This is what I've been looking for. 
And that's, that's what I said. Well, that's what I said to my wife after I got my first interview in Philadelphia. Told me you don't <laughs> want to work here. You do not want to work here. This is crazy. You don't. And I go outside and I call. <laughs> I call my wife and I say, "This is really crazy. I am totally not prepared for this, and I, I, I like I can't do this job. And I am going to get this job. I have to have this job." I remember that conversation. I said, "I have." I said, "I'm crazy. I won't be able to do it, but I have to have this job." You know, like anything else, Mark. Work should be an extension of who you really are. You shouldn't have to create a work persona. And I was fortunate that we were creating a company where there was total trust between each other. You didn't always have to agree. That wasn't even the goal. But you knew that people wouldn't disagree to disagree. They wouldn't be disagreeable to prove, make you look bad. They disagreed. That's fine. And then we talk it through and we make a decision and we go on. And watching that permeate the organization, you just, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. You, you're a certain type of people are attracted to that. Another part of the culture, which I think worked for me, certain cultures say, look, here's what you're going to do every day, Mark. You're going to get here at eight o'clock. You can sit at that desk till nine o'clock. We're going to have a, a team meeting. We're going to go over everything you're going to do. And then you're going to operate this. You're going to do this playbook till five o'clock. And this, and you do that every day, you're going to do great. Well, that may work with a new employee who's coming from college and they're trying to find a new industry. I get that. You got to help them figure out what you're doing. But we never thought that was what we wanted. What we wanted to do is say, hey, Mark, here's the goal. Here's what you got to accomplish. Here are the things you have at your disposal to call upon. Executives, coaches, technology. You're not that strong technologically. Here's an SEU who can help you, but you got to go. So at the end of the day, we expect you to go figure out how to go get that goal and tell us what you need. And to, it's like a kid who does well in high school when everything structures and falls apart when they go to college because now they have all this free time. They don't know. They don't do the right things. But there are other people who blossom when they get into a role. Of, Wait a minute. People trust me here. It's OK to say I don't know, like you did when you first came. You go, I don't know any of this stuff. OK, we didn't think you did. But you now have to commit to learning it. Here's the resources you have at your disposal. And there's a trust and a belief both ways when someone does that work and they have a different uh, view of themselves by the time it's over. And the organization says, that's what we thought was going to happen. We do as a good guy. That's why we hired them. Mm. So, you know, over the years, how has it evolved for you? Because you always expected, you know, high high, high output work. You know, it was, it was, it, it was tough stuff being in, in right. technology then. And now, um, how do you, how has it evolved for you supporting people for the long haul for you know, for longevity in a high pressure situation? How do you, how do you look, what do you look for and how do you help people to really look at the horizon rather than the short-term goals? You know, what I do today is I'm on boards, right? I'm on three boards, all doing very well, all high growth situations. And one of the things is if you're not in the day-to-day, -day, like you're not in day-to-day, -day, you advise people. And first of all, you find you know stuff that's different because people go, how do you know that, Mark? <laughs> it's experience. And so I have experience of having built a lot at NetApp and what I learned at NetApp. It's very interesting me to do with people who don't work for me. And so I'm on the board of directors of a company and I'm almost always involved with their sales leadership and sales people if they want me to be. And when you take one step removed, a lot of the stuff that we learned and did is very valuable coaching for someone else who's not in their chain of command. Mm. So I have lots, a lot of former NetApp people still ask me to, I don't want to call it mentoring because that, that, that's too formal. But when they have issues, they call me. 
Is there any chance I could talk to you? And they describe a situation that they're facing in that new company. And they find it valuable, I guess, because they keep doing it. <laughs> and I find it valuable because I'm not in the business. Mm. You're not, you're not in the business of the people you're coaching, but all the things that you have experienced and seen work or not work. So a lot of times they'll say, This is what I'm doing. And I'm saying, Well, let me let me tell you how that would hit me. If you came into me with that rap, it would not work. And here's why. Here's, have you thought about doing it this way? And they're probably in a situation they can't say that to someone inside without looking weak. They don't want to show that yeah. they don't know what they're doing. I had a super high up executive at Oracle. We had a dinner in Silicon Valley, me, him, and our sales guy. He ended up being, he, was, he had 10,000 people under him at Oracle. And when the sales guy went to the restroom, he's turned to me and said, can I ask you for a huge favor? I said, sure, what is it? He said, can I get together with you every six months? just me and you, and maybe have a phone call in between, because you've said more things that are resonating, but I can't say anything in front of your sales guy. I'm not going to say that means something to me. And I definitely am not saying that with an Oracle, because it'll be perceived as weakness. But to have somebody say to me, what you just said, and let me tell you what I'm going through, would be huge, which is what you're doing for a living now. I, but, people people pay me to say things to them that other people won't say to them because they're in leadership positions. And, and maybe it's because they're in the chain of command. They don't, you know, there's, there's politics involved, whether you call it that or not, but I get it. But I've, I've found it very interesting and rewarding to be able to have conversations with people. You know, if, if I have conversations with people and they never actually take action on it, at some point I say, well, there's really no point in me talking to you. You've asked me three times, bro, you've done exactly the opposite of what I said, and it didn't work. And now you're going, I should have listened, I should have listened. I'm not telling you you got to do anything, but I'm sure I'm not the only person giving you advice you're not listening to. You're basically stuck, and all you want to do is complain. That's, right. that's not that interesting. If you really think, and don't just use me, bounce it off people, but you know, I'm unhappy in my job, I really can't stand what I'm doing, and you're still in it three years later, I can't help you. <laughs> Here's, a, here's another thing you're a living example of is the fact that when you're interested in people for as long as you have been and you've made an impact on people, you know, and as you, 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 know, you retire and you, you know, less, less and less have hands in the actual businesses, yeah. your relationships, people will be calling you and you'll be vibrant and interactive, you know, until in your nineties, people will come and sit with you and want to, want to get your insights on things. And you, you know, that, that richness is what I think is what that third, fourth act is. And yeah. you get to live yeah, that. I, no. My wife and I got to meet Charlie Rose. We were on a friend of mine that was a well-known entrepreneur. He funded, he's a well-known angel investor, I should say. And he brought a yacht to New York and he was hosting a lot of entrepreneurs from New York that he's invested in. But Charlie Rose came on the yacht. And uh, I've always liked Charlie Rose. I'm sorry, he ended up getting in trouble and all that kind of stuff. But as a show, I thought his show was off. The, I would not miss it. I mean, You'd have Shimon Perez on one night, next day, you know, all these incredible. And he had done the work and it was just a great, great conversation. And I said, to, so I got to know him. We had dinner together. Got, got to know him. He lived right across from me in New York City, actually. And I said to him, look, how did you get started? I understand now you're Charlie Rose. You can call anybody in the world to be on your shelf. But how did it start that people even cared about you? Kind of like Ed Sullivan in the day. How did, how did he become a guy? And he said, you know, Tom, I had a radio show in North Carolina. And it really comes down to I've always thought the most interesting thing in the world was a conversation between two people. That's how I feel. 
So I, Mark, I live in New York the last 10 years, you know, I'm kind of a COVID refugee right now, but I love New York City because I have so many random meetings with people where you start a conversation, you learn something, they learn something. I have some great friends that I met just like that in a restaurant. They happen to be sitting next to me, you know, and you just start talking. And so one of the great things I like to do in life is go to dinner with friends or people that I dislike, whether I know them well or not, and enjoy that evening. You get so much out of it. And it's, and there's no ask. There's no, I'm not doing it for a reason, that, but your life becomes enriched by knowing a lot of interesting people and their story. I love knowing people's stories. At the end of the day, I think there's nothing more interesting than seeing someone who's come from virtually nothing in some cases to unbelievable things. It's not just the achievement. You know, it could be just, you know, teachers, nurses, things they do are just astonishes me. But it's how did this whole person come about? Mm. I remember you, I, I do remember a story of you meeting someone uh, random who we always dreamed of going to a Notre Dame football game. We never had the means to be able to do it. And you didn't know him out of the blue. And you just, you took them to a, to your. We were, sitting in a, we were sitting in a bar at Notre Dame, South Bend, Indiana. And we're having fun. There's 24 of us. And these four guys seem like a lot of fun. So I'm buying them drinks. They were from Canada. And I say, how'd you like the game? Oh, we loved it. I said, where were you sitting? Well, we didn't get in the stadium. I said, what do you mean you didn't get in the stadium? No, no, no. We drove here. I think they drove 10 hours. We drove just to be in the environment. We don't have, we, we've never been able to get tickets. I said, have you done this before? Oh yeah, we've done it a number of times. And you've never been in the stadium? No, no. You know, Canadian people. So nice. I said, well, look, I have four tickets on the 50-yard line. You can use them for, I'll use them all, one game for like this, but you can use them for any game you want. Todd was the guy, the main guy's name. He still contacts me. He follows me on, you know, I'm sure he'll watch this. And we had so much fun with that night. And then they followed up and they did it. I, ha I had a t-shirt created. There's a famous t-shirt for a Notre Dame football game when we played Miami in 19. It was Catholics versus convicts. Very famous. There's been a 30 for 30 on it. We were facing... Uh, Tennessee, and I made a Catholic versus Clampett's church. <laughs> Guy Sports Illustrated the next week says I'm wise eye alumni, wise ass alumni. <laughs> I walked in the pep rally, people went crazy. Anyway, that shirt hangs in the bar at a place called Tap House on the Edge right now, signed by me and the Canadian from that night. <laughs> it's over there, cash register. That's so uh, cool. just, you know, it's just a privilege to be in be in a spot where something small act of kindness can mean so much to somebody. Why wouldn't you take it? <laughs> and it does way more for you than it ever did for them. That's the, you know, I'm sure the Mark, you do the same thing. It's not a matter. It was, it was nothing, but just, it just had been, it's a privilege in life to be in a spot where people really care what you think. And a small act of kindness means a lot to them. Or maybe somebody I know can do that small act of kindness. I had a friend of mine, his father, we always tailgated an orange van. And my friend Ed Gibbons, Ed, Eddie Gibbons and John Gibbons, their father, huge Notre Dame fan. And right before his 70th birthday, Joe Montana is a friend of mine. I got Joe Montana to do, come to that app and do a video. Never forget, says, Ed, I got a bone to pick with you. I understand you're a giant fan. <laughs> He's talking to Ed Gibbons, Ed Sr. And they, uh, they did that video for him, which was, you know, it was fun for us to do, but incredible for the family to experience things like that or you know if you can do it do it hmm. incredible well tom thank you for spending time 
I appreciate it. I spent, I spent hundreds of thousands of dollars and traveled the world on my training for coaching and leadership. And I learned as much organically and teach as much organically as what I've learned from you, the years I got to work with you and watch you. So thank you for everything you've done for me. Well, I am not at all surprised by your success. You were, I thought you were special. When I first met you, you went through a lot of stuff. But I'll tell you something, you're very, very good at what you're doing. Really good. I've been watching some of your videos. You're just very, very good. I'm happy for you, man. Thank and you. if you want me back on another time, we have a second chat, you let me know. I'll do it. If you, dude, I, I got I got about uh, four hours of content I'd love to get out of you. So if you if if I if we if we got you, you know your way back here. There's a few, you know, there's some leader, some very specific leadership and culture things I would love to talk about. Sure. So thank you. Happy to do it. All right, Tom, thank you again. I appreciate your time and your attention. Stay safe and healthy. To everybody else, you know you're precious to me. I love you. Take care of yourself. Have a great rest of the day. Thank you for joining today's conversation. If you got value, please share the episode, give us a thumbs up, write us a review. And if there's a topic you'd like us to cover or a question that you have, send them my way. Look forward to connecting on the next episode of the Rising Leader Podcast.